So it's Matthew 24, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 31, page 993 of the Church Bibles. It's uh, headed, Signs of the End of the Age. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see, standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house, let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, There he is, out in the desert, or do not go out, or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the Son of uh, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. 
they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, ever since Jesus ascended to heaven 2,000 or so years ago, there have been predictions about when he will return, including many in recent years. There was uh, Bill Morpin, a pastor of the uh, uh, church in Tucson, Arizona, who wrote a book predicting the date of the second coming as being uh, June the 28th, 1981. His congregation sold all their belongings. They went to a hilltop to await that event. I don't know whether they're still there or if they got their belongings back. And there was Benjamin Cream who um, put advertisements in many of the world's uh, newspapers in early 1982 stating that the second coming would occur on Monday the 21st of June 1982. And at that time Christ would announce his second coming on worldwide television. Well, when this event didn't happen, Cream claimed that the world is not yet ready to receive him. Others make similar claims and change their dates or claim that Christ did come, but um, he's not visible, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that Jesus came in 1914. Well, we're in the middle of a sermon series on questions that people ask Jesus, and it's not surprising that one of the questions that the disciples would ask Jesus would be, what will be the sign of your coming? You know, if this was going to be such a momentous event marking the end of history, then it'll be great to be given the, the inside track. After all, we are, we are closest followers, you know. Any chance of letting us in on this, uh, this little secret? It's not a question that comes out of the blue. It comes in response to something which Jesus says. So it would be helpful just to look at the context of this. I mean, if you've got the Bibles open there at page 993, and just look back at chapter 23, and you'll see here that Jesus has been proclaiming a series of woes on the Pharisees. And he's not one to mince his words. He calls them, you hypocrites. He calls them, you whitewashed tombs, you snakes. Not particularly complimentary. But what we need to be clear about is that these woes are not a series of curses. These are expressions of misfortunes that will happen to the Pharisees as a result of their actions. And Jesus isn't enjoying saying this to them. In fact, his great compassion for them comes out in verse 37. Look, look at verse 37. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And it's out of this compassion for them that he's warning them about the consequences of their actions. He wants to protect them from themselves. And so he finishes this uh, discourse there in verse 38 by saying, Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, unless you accept me as the Messiah, you won't be a part of my kingdom. And the words at the start of chapter 24, Jesus left the temple, I think of greater significance than Jesus simply leaving a building. These are Jesus turning his back 
on the Jewish leaders. And it leaves the disciples pretty confused, isn't it? Why is he saying, your house has left you desolate? You know, the disciples came up to Jesus and they said to him, you know, they called his attention to its buildings, it says in verse, verse 1 of chapter 24. They're almost saying, look, in case you hadn't noticed, the buildings here are looking in pretty good shape. You know, there's no building project required here. This is the most fantastic piece of architecture that we have ever seen. This is, you know, there's gold here, there's marble. Is desolate really the word you meant? Well, Jesus answers them. Verse 2, I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. It may look pretty nice now, but the temple has served its purpose. I am looking for people to worship me in spirit and in truth. A worship not restricted to times and places, but a genuine worship that comes from the heart. And it's in this context that the disciples ask the question, when will this happen? In verse uh, 3, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And what they're doing is they're linking the prophecy Jesus has about the temple being destroyed with his previous teaching about his return at the end of the age. And it's these two things that are going on here that makes this passage particularly difficult to understand. And having grappled with it this week, I think I'm ready for another holiday already. Because part of the passage here, if you look at verses 15 to 21, this is, as most commentators agree, referring to a specific historic event. An event that happened in AD AD 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. And that effectively marked a closing of this Jewish era as the generation rejected the Messiah. The other part is referring to the things that will happen before the second coming of Jesus Christ, at the end of the age. That will bring about the history of humankind to a close. The first part of the destruction of Jerusalem that happened after Roman troops had been besieging the city for four years, caused incredible suffering within the city, and eventually the troops stormed the city. They killed a million Jews in the process. They took 100,000 captive, and they destroyed the temple. So when Jesus says there in verse 15, when you see the standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, then flee to the mountains. He's giving them a warning of what is about to happen. The abomination that causes desolation. It's a phrase used in the book of Daniel. It's a prophecy that um, is believed to have been first fulfilled when um, Epiphanes took over the temple and um, dedicated it to Zeus in 168 BC. Sacrificed pigs on the altar. Turned the rooms of the temple into a brothel. But what Jesus is saying here is this prophecy is going to be further fulfilled when Titus and the Roman soldiers lay waste to the temple and give praise to their emperor Caesar. So we have the events of AD 70, we have this dual prophecy looking ahead symbolically to these events but also to the end of the age. And these two things are sort of blurring together in this passage. It's a bit like um, when we were away in the mountains you could see a mountain in front of you, the top of that mountain. And just behind, you could see another peak, which literally looked just behind. Because when you got there, you realised it was a long way in the distance. And that's what you've got here, these two events, a long way apart, but blurring into to one another. But what about the one which is of most interest to us today, the sign of Jesus coming, 
the sign of the end of the age. Now, first we have to ask us the question, what is this age that will come to an end? If you remember, Matthew's Gospel was very much about the kingdom of heaven. I think it's about 30 times that that phrase is mentioned in this Gospel. How Jesus came to establish the kingdom of heaven and how people are invited to become members of it. As people become citizens of this kingdom, they're effectively members of two countries, of this age and the age to come. So this age is the time between Jesus' ascension and the time when he will come again. And that is the great tension that we, if we are Christians here this morning, experience. We're part of two different kingdoms. We are not what we once used to be. As we heard from Mark earlier, we have changed. We're living new lives. We have a new master. But we are still not yet what we will one day be. There is still a time that we look forward to. And what that means is we don't need to be worried about, we don't need to fear the end of history. We actually look forward to it. Because that will be the day when the Lord's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which he asks us to pray for. So what will be the sign of Jesus' coming? What will be the sign of the end of the age? How does Jesus answer this question? He points to, I think, two main things here. Two types of sign. The first of those is deception and false teaching. Have a look at verse 5. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Look at verse 11. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And verse 24. For, first, for, false prof- for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. We talked about people speculating when Jesus will come again. But far worse than that is those who have claimed to be the Christ himself which is what many have done. I don't know whether some of you remember um, David Icke, a BBC television sports presenter, spokesman for the Green Party, um, had an encounter with a psychic and then, I think it was on the Terry Wogan show, claimed to be the son of God. Not taken too seriously, but others have founded worldwide movements. There's been Sun Myung Moon, who believed that Jesus had anointed him to fulfil the mission of the second coming and founded the Mooney, the Church of the Moonies, the Unification Church. Or as there was Joseph Smith, who founded the Mormons, somebody who viewed himself as a latter-day prophet who needed to restore the lost truths of the Bible, to correct the Bible where it had gone astray, and uh, introduced the Book of Mormon, revelations that have been made to him. There are many more that we could mention and what these, these cults have in common is that they're founded by people who believe that they are more than human. And that is the big warning sign. When the focus of somebody's teaching is not focused on Jesus, but on them themselves, then we need to be worried. Well, they're more interested in their own following than making disciples of Jesus Christ. And often the way in which they ensure the allegiance of their followers is by imposing new rules, new new regulations um, by which they can subject them. And so the gospel of grace, in which God shows his unconditional love to the world, becomes a gospel of works which enslaves 
people to a human leader. The biggest deception that uh, we experience um, by any of these people is to prevent someone from entering the kingdom of heaven. And to do that by either making them feel unable to live up to man-made rules or by making them trust in their own strength that they feel they have done that. And that is why Jesus had such strong words for the Pharisees. Look back at chapter 23 again, and at verse um, 13. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. That is the worst thing that we can do. Well, we may feel that we're not so gullible as to be taken in by such people. There is a warning here that people will appear who will perform miracles to deceive even the elect. And it is easy to think, isn't it, that a miracle must be of God. But it's clear from this passage that that is not always the case. Deception is one of the signs of the end of the age. And deception also has a part to play in the next sign, which is distress. The word distress occurs here in the word translated in verse 9 as persecuted. It's there in verse 21. There will be great distress in verse 29, immediately after the distress of those days. It can be translated as pressure, um, tribulation. It refers to suffering, to pain, to anguish. And it's caused by different things. One of the things it's caused by here in verse 6 is human violence. Look there at verse 6. It says, you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. It says in verse 7, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And however culturally sophisticated we think we might be, we don't seem able as human beings to avoid conflict. You know, this week, the last US combat brigade pulled out of Iraq after seven years. The war in Afghanistan continues. The Arab-Israeli conflict continues. There are conflicts throughout the world that aren't in our headlines that we forget about. Human violence is a feature of the end of the, of the time, of the end of the age. But secondly, natural disasters. It says there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And we don't need any reminder of natural disasters. The, the Haiti earthquake is still fresh in our minds. We've been talking about the Pakistani floods this morning. And the media reports of donor fatigue because of the number of such disasters it's a consequence of a world that Paul describes in Romans as groaning, that is suffering from the effects of the fall. Natural disasters, and then in verse 9, there is persecution. It says, verse 9, then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. We're aware of the persecution of Christians throughout the world. And what makes the current natural disaster in Pakistan so tragic for Christians is that it comes on top of the persecution that they experience on a regular basis as a result of Jesus, as a result of their faith. Christians in this country are experiencing more and more discrimination. You read about the story of the um, employee of Wandsworth Council 
He's had his appeal this week dismissed. Um, He was uh, sacked for gross misconduct. Um, Apparently that gross misconduct was in a housing interview, in the process of chatting with the person. Um, They mentioned that they had an incurable illness and he suggested that she shouldn't give up hope um, but try putting her faith in God. Um, Just a conversation she was having with her and he was fired. You can understand it when the church is criticised due to the moral failings of its leaders. But when Christians are trying to show the love of God to the world and are hated because of Jesus, then that is hard to cope with. Well, so much for the signs. What is more important um, in many ways is not so much what are these signs, but what is the purpose of them? Why are these signs there? And it looks like in this passage, Jesus answers that they are there to provide a warning and they are there to provide an encouragement. Look at the warning in verse 10. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. The worrying part of this warning is that in the midst of this persecution, many, it says, not just a few, but many, will turn away from the faith. They will betray and they will hate each other. This is people in the church will betray and hate each other. And because of the increase of wickedness, it says the love of most will grow cold. Not just a few or many, but most. Christians will lose that love for each other and for others. They'll lose compassion, they'll become wrapped up in their own affairs. This is a frightening prospect, isn't it? I mean, you think of it, how many disagreements you may have had with Christian brothers and, and sisters over relatively minor things over the years. Just how think, if you can fall out over those things, is it surprising that when real distress comes, that we are warned that we will betray and hate each other and the love of most of us will grow cold? That is a warning we need to take seriously. But fortunately, there's an encouragement that follows because it says, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And of course, with that warning and that encouragement, the big question for us is how can we ensure that we will be those who stand firm to the end and not those who fall away not those whose love grows cold. And the answer here is to grow in our love for Jesus Christ, to grow in our faith. Our faith has to mature if it is to remain firm. Yes, the moment of our conversion is important when we repent of our self-centred lives, when we turn to Christ for forgiveness, for salvation, But it can't end there because if we are to be sure that our salvation has a lasting effect, it's not just a flash in the pan, it's not just a spur-of-the-moment decision, we want to be growing more like Christ. We want to be trusting more and more in the love and the sovereign power of God. We want to be able to spot false teaching when it comes along. The interesting thing is that after saying many will turn away from the faith and will train hate each other, it says, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. It's in the time of distress 
that we are most prone to false teaching. When people start to question the the love of God in the face of suffering. When people start to say that you deserve more than this. When people start to say a Christian shouldn't deserve to suffer. He or she should only deserve blessing in his life. And it's unless you're sure of the sovereignty, of the love of God in times of blessing, it'll be much harder to stand firm and be convinced of that when suffering comes along. The purpose of the signs then is not to encourage speculation about the exact date when Jesus will come again. After all, he himself said that um, he didn't know when that would be. Only the Father knows, he says. The important point that Jesus is making here, and which he goes on to stress in chapter 25, do please read that when you go home, in those three parables, is that we need to be ready. We need to be ready for when he comes. And that means we need to decide if we are for Jesus or not. There's there's only one or the other. There's no in-between. And when he comes again... It won't be a slipping in the back door. It won't be, he's here but you can't see him. It'll be an unmistakable event. Look at verse 27. It says, as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Or verse 30. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. For some, and I hope you are amongst them, they will be gathered to be with their Lord forever. But others will be left. It goes on in verse 40 to say, two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other will be left. Jesus is coming again. It will be a day of great glory. But the conclusion for us is this morning. Therefore, in verse 42, keep watch. Therefore, keep watch. Be ready because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. Don't be alarmed, Jesus says. Don't be deceived. But be ready and look forward to that day with great joy.